Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. Today, the amazing Amy Cuddy. The word is thrown around like confetti on New Year's Eve right now, authenticity, and it's not defined well. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It's not about being unfiltered and, you know, say whatever you want whenever you want to. And it's not about being exactly the same in every situation. It is about staying true to the things that you most love and admire about yourself. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Well, it took more than a year, not just a year, more than a year of us chasing down our guest today. And the reason is that I've just been fascinated by her work. Her name is Amy Cuddy. You have probably heard about her TED Talk, the second most popular TED Talk ever, She turned that TED Talk and the research on which it was based into a book, and the book is called Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. Amy Cuddy is a phenomenal, interesting interviewee. I had a great time with her, so I don't want to give away too much. This is uh, just a joy, and you'll hear it in my voice, and uh, I hope you enjoy it yourselves. If you've got a question or a comment, feel free to send us an email, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. So right now, let's go to our interview, One Year in the Making, with Amy Cuddy. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Amy Cuddy, welcome to Better Off. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so Amy, uh, we start the program with a very important question. Ready? Yes. What is the best financial or career decision you have ever made? Oh, geez. Um, um, oh, this is supposed to be easy, isn't it? Uh-huh. Uh, I I think it... it was to stay open to um, possibilities that I thought didn't fit the path that I was on. I think we close the doors and we say, no, no, that doesn't fit my path. I'm not going to look at it. If you stay open, you sometimes find things that fit you even better. Now, you know what's interesting about that? So you are trained as a social psychologist. and. Yes. I'm sure that you have younger folks around you there at that piddly little university up in Cambridge, (laughs) I mean, Harvard. I have found that so many of the younger folks that I encounter, they're so focused on their careers that they are unwilling to take a step to the side or do something different. Do you find that as well? Well, that's really funny that you you ask that because I'm I'm teaching uh, a class called The Psychology of Leadership and Influence right now to the undergraduates. And my understanding is that it's the first time there's been a psychology of leadership course taught to the undergrads. I am loving it. I love interacting with them. They're 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 not cynical. They're, you know, they're optimistic, they're eager, uh, and they're creative. When I, when I meet with them one-on-one, they are so afraid of failing and so focused, yeah, exactly, on sort of this linear path that they're on, that I, I, I worry that they don't have any time to sort of reflect and keep themselves open to other other opportunities. So it's funny, I ended class yesterday telling them it's okay to do that. It's okay to not have a million balls in the air at once. It's okay. Allow space. I mean, I don't know. I feel like when, when I was in college 100 years ago, we were so career focused and maybe that might be why 
we talked a lot more about some of the things you cover in your book, Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges, which is now out in paperback. We talked a lot about, I think, our introspection and like kind of what made us tick. And now I feel like there's this this uh, finite amount of time to get my degree and become the, the smartest person ever and get on my career. And the, it's almost... Uh, it's like manic in a way. It feels a little bit it, daunting to me. It really is. It, it does feel that way. And they're actually, they're very modest. And each of them feels that, that he or she is doing less than everyone else. So it's not that they think they're great. It's that they, they never feel they're doing enough to get the right job. But when I ask them what is the right job, they're not even quite sure what that is. Right? Sort of they get on a path. But, but when I say what do you want to be doing, what kind of work do you want to be doing, it's hard for them to answer that. Mm. It's sort of what work they feel they should be doing. Uh, and I, I think you're right about the conversations. It's funny. I, I My husband's Australian, and the, there's this there's this term in Australia, uh, D&M, and it means deep and meaningful. And it's the kind of conversation that you have in your dorm room in the middle of the night with your friends, you know, those those sort of thinking about the world kinds of uh, introspective um, conversations. And I don't know if students have the time to do that these days. All right. So you wrote this book after you have given your famous TED Talk, which is I guess for a while was the most watched TED Talk. Now it's the second, so I think you got to bump off whoever's number one. So that's I, I think good. it. I think it bumped up. So I have never been number one, and I'm, I'm very happy to be number two because I have such incredible admiration for for Ken Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson, who's number one. I All love right, this talk. So you gave this talk at TED Global in 2012, and it was essentially about the correlation between how um, one's confidence can improve and your anxiety can decrease when you are able to kind of get control over your body and construct this thing called the power pose. So what happened after you gave that talk? Just tell me personally, like that thing went nuts and viral. So what happened to you personally? Um, My life changed. Uh, You know, I, I immediately was getting, you know, hundreds of emails a day uh, from people all over the world, really all over the world, all ages, all backgrounds. The challenges that people were talking about, uh, you know, range from, you know, I'm a 13-year-old girl in China and I'm trying to work up the nerve to raise my hand in class to I'm a World War II veteran and I am trying to work up the nerve to get my doctor to take me seriously when I go in to see him. Right. So that or or I'm an executive and I feel like an imposter. I could not believe how many people were resonating with this message. That was mind-blowing. But I also learned that that what people were struggling with was how to be present, how to not be terrified walking into situations that they find really challenging. And although the situations vary across people, the basic uh, description remains the same. It's a situation where the stakes feel high and where you know you're being socially evaluated. And that sends people into a kind of fight or flight mental state. And their bodies and their minds respond not as if they're going into a job interview, but as if they're being chased by a tiger. 
And that's not adaptive. So it really got me much more interested in helping people to get through these situations. In your book, you say that presence, and I'm going to quote, as I mean it throughout these pages, is the state of being attuned to and able to comfortably express our true thoughts, feelings, values, and potential. So what gets in the way of being able to express that? We are more focused on what others think of us than what we think of ourselves. Uh, We're focused too much on the outcome and not on the process. And we feel powerless and we consent to that feeling of powerlessness. And that's very dangerous. So I think those three things make it very difficult for us to be uh, courageous and authentic and present and connected in those moments. It's weird because, like, you know, you use that word authentic in the book, and I think you used it in the TED Talk as well, and you studied it. And then it's almost like in the last, say, group of years that being your authentic self at work really came into the vernacular, especially in the business world. And I still get a lot of people who will say to me, you know, like, I can't be my authentic self at work. I I can't be the exact same person with my friends as I am with my family as I am at work. Like, how can I do that? What is what is that authenticity that you're talking about? Because obviously you're not going to be the exact same person. I mean, first, accept, and I talk about this in the book, that everyone is sort of made up of multiple selves, but that doesn't mean that there's not an authentic core. So the word is thrown around like confetti on New Year's Eve right now, authenticity, and it's not defined well. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It's not about being unfiltered and, you know, saying whatever you want whenever you want to, and it's not about being exactly the same in every situation. It is about staying true to the things that you most love and admire about yourself and being able to access those and bring them forth in these situations. That also involves really deeply listening to the people that you're interacting with and, you know, adjusting in order to to make sure that they feel heard as well. You are not being um, disloyal to your authentic self by doing that. So I think that people get confused. They think that authentic means unfiltered and that you are going to behave exactly the same way in every situation. And that's not the case, but it's also not inauthentic, you know, to adjust to the situation that you're in. You know, I am gay. I'm out. And forever we talked about the power of being out at work. People would say, oh, you know, this is like sort of a way to make people feel comfortable around gay people. But I actually found something totally different, which was. It was so freaking exhausting not being out like way back when. And that to me, like that was like sort of my key of authenticity is that like, okay, when I finally was like, all right, now just forget about it. Like I can't, I'm not going to hide this. I was in a client business. I was like, ah, forget it. It's what's the heck? I'm living in Providence, Rhode Island. It's, you know, there's five people who know everybody else. So it's, everyone's going to find out eventually. It was so much easier because I guess that until I did that, I, I was spending a lot of energy putting up this big, huge barrier around myself. So that was the, for me, the authenticity was just like, oh, it's exhausting. That And being yes. something else for other people is exhausting. That's exactly, that's a great, a, a great example, a great description. It is exhausting. You are eating up so much cognitive and emotional bandwidth by suppressing the true story of who you are and trying to put forth a, a sort of, you know, not quite true story, a false story of who you are, that you have nothing left 
to actually work with. So it's a huge relief when you are able to express your true self. Uh, it also, I think this is this is important for us whenever we're thinking about self-development, to be thinking about how how our self-development impacts other people's self-development. When you are able to be your authentic self with others, you liberate them to do so with you. Right, so so presence begets presence. That's another thing that happens. Uh, but think about what happens when people are lying. I mean, lying in the traditional sense, like literally telling one story while they're suppressing another story, like calling into work and saying, "I can't come today because I'm sick," <laughs> even though really you're going on a vacation with your friends. Right, that that kind of lying. What happens is that. The emotions that are associated with the story that you're suppressing, which is you're going on vacation with your friends, the emotions that are associated with the story that you're faking, that you're sick, and the conflict and guilt that you have uh, about lying, all of those emotions going on simultaneously. So what do people do when they're lying? They are good at managing the words they say. They have the bandwidth to do that, but they're terrible at managing the nonverbals that go with that. So all of the ways in which we indicate emotion through our speech, I mean, not just the words, how quickly we speak, how much range we use through our facial expressions, through our postures, through our gestures, those things fall apart. And so you can tell when someone is lying, not because they don't make eye contact, that's a terrible, terrible signal, actually, but because you see an asynchrony between the words and the, the nonverbals. That's People f- are trying to manage all of those things at once. And so when you are having to suppress who you are at work, that's what's happening. You're managing the impression you're making on others and not the impression that you're making on yourself. And something falls apart. You just don't have the bandwidth to do it because you're human. All right. So we all agree we got to be our authentic selves and we have to kind of find our presence. I was really compelled by this idea around warmth and competence. Yes. Um, that just jumped out at me because you're talking about a study with by um, Oscar Ibarra and mm-hmm. uh, found that people process words related to warmth and morality, friendly, honest, and others, faster than words related to competence, creative, skillful, in other words like that. Can you talk a little bit about that warmth and competence uh, breakdown there? Yeah, so it's funny because that's actually my primary area of research. So I've been studying judgments of warmth and competence for since 1998. So most of my research is in that area. So I'm very glad that you find it interesting. But we started studying warmth and competence uh, as stereotyping researchers. So we were studying stereotypes. And what we found was that most stereotypes of most groups basically include these two dimensions. People are judging other groups on how much they like them, how nice they are, and on how competent or how strong they are. You can think of them also as you know trustworthiness and strength, warmth and competence. No matter what, they break down into two dimensions. And those two dimensions, how warm is this person, how competent is, is this person, Those two dimensions account for or explain almost all of the variance in our overall impression of another person. So if I just said from positive to negative, how do you feel about this person? Warmth and competence would pretty much be able to predict that perfectly, which means those are the two dimensions along which we're judging people because they answer two important questions about strangers. Do I trust them? You know, what are their intentions toward me? And are they capable of enacting those intentions? So are they warm? 
are they competent? So that's where these two dimensions come from. The funny thing, though, is that people get them wrong when they are thinking about the impression they make on others. So everyone wants to be seen as competent, but they want other people to be warm. Huh. Because trust is much more important than competence. You know, if you're thinking about uh, an, an interaction, if you're thinking about this from a very primitive perspective, how safe is this person? It matters more how trustworthy they are than how competent they are. So we process warmth information more quickly. We search for it before we search for competence information, and we weight it more heavily in our overall impression of other people. And by extension, I mean, the really awesome part of this is that bringing it back to presence is that you say the way to establish trust is by being present. So that's kind of fascinating as well, because it sort of brings it full circle that if you are present, if you kind of know yourself, if you're authentic, if you're listening well, then someone's going to feel that there's going to be warmth. There's going to then be like this feeling of like, okay, a trustworthiness. I guess I'm wondering, like physiologically, once you've established that, then does like the brain process the competence piece or is it all happening simultaneously? Not exactly simultaneously, but we're talking about milliseconds uh, in terms of first impressions. So people are making that warmth impression first, but you know, it's within a matter of seconds. They're making impressions based on things like facial features, which is not fair and not accurate, but nonetheless, we do that. I think what you're asking about more is when you establish trust, when people know that, that, you, that you are trustworthy, they are able to assess your competence and strength in a way that's not threatening. So your competence and strength is not a, um, a threat. It's a welcome gift, especially if you're in a position of leadership where people are so inclined to first flex their muscles. They want to prove that they're the strongest, they're the smartest, they're the smartest guy in the room. And that's not the right way to go about it. I, I say connect then lead, right? Establish trust first, because trust is the conduit of influence. People want a leader who they can trust, and then they know that that strength that that leader has serves them, not just the leader, him or herself. It's, it's really, it's very interesting because, you know, I know you're dealing with it in leadership. I'm just thinking about it because, you know, look, I'm somebody who's on TV and radio, so I'm thinking about it always is peculiar who an audience is going to be able to key into as relatable, right? I think that we've always tried to measure this. We've tried to make it scientific, but maybe it's not actually that scientific. I mean, in certain jobs, not just leadership roles, but maybe it's just everyone. Like if you can tap into that warmth, you are probably going to be more successful. Is that correct? I think that's exactly right. And that's I think that people see me as pathologically optimistic, and some people find it Pollyannish and annoying. But but what they don't realize is that by staying true to um, my belief that I have to find the things I love about people, I'm helping myself. I I I am more successful and effective as a person by doing that. Right. So I, there's always something that allows me to connect with anyone. Right. There's some point of connection. There's something to like about them. If we can tap into that part of ourselves, not only are we happier because we're, you know, we, we see the, the world uh, through, you know, slightly rosier colored glasses, but we are much better at actually connecting and being effective and forming good relationships and being influential. So the funny thing is that people see warmth and competence as 
negatively, you know, hydraulically related. So the warmer a person is, the less competent they often believe they are. Not oh, that's always. funny. But uh, and, and vice versa, competent people are seen as less warm, even if they're actually quite warm. Uh, so whichever one seems to be dominant uh, ends up sort of costing people in, in perception on the other dimension. Obviously not true all the time, but in, in first impressions, you, you sometimes see this. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Amy Cuddy in just a minute. Uh, her new book, by the way, is called Presence, and it's out in paperback, so you want to check that out. And uh, good news for you is that our sponsor, Betterment, had the presence of mind to design an investing service to help improve your long-term returns and lower your taxes. Betterment is the largest independent online financial advisor. They have personalized advice for your financial planning needs. Based on the information that you tell Betterment, they'll make tailored recommendations on decisions like how much to invest, how much risk to take on in your portfolio, and the type of investment account you should have. Betterment also can give you a clear view of your net worth when you sync your outside accounts like bank accounts and other investments. They'll show you how much those outside brokerage accounts are costing you in fees and uninvested cash. Bottom line, Betterment can help. The way you can get that help is by simply visiting the website, betterment.com slash better off. And now back to our interview with Amy Cuddy. Okay, so let's get into some of like, how did the whole power pose thing evolve? Like, how did you start? Mm -hmm. Like you started studying, you know, warmth and uh, trustworthiness and competence. And then so when did the whole power posing part of your career emerge? Uh, there were a couple of things that happened. I mean, I, 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 as I said, I'd been studying, you know, judgments of others, and really, I'd been studying stereotyping and prejudice for years. And I'm, I've always been very interested in helping people who are disempowered to become empowered, right? And and understanding the obstacles that they face. And obviously, prejudice is a huge obstacle. Uh, in the Harvard Business School classroom, I was noticing that these, you know, I mean, you have a room full of very smart students, very accomplished people, yet the women were participating, it seemed to me, significantly less than the men were participating. And when they participated, they did so in this sort of apologetic way, right? So they would raise their hand by kind of cradling their elbow in the opposite hand. I call it the apologetic hand raise. Yeah. And they would truncate their comments so they'd rush through what they wanted to say. There's just There was an apolog apologetic quality to uh, their their comments in class. When I meet with them one-on-one -on -one outside of class, they're, they're friggin' brilliant, right? Hmm. <laughs> they, 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 they're totally comfortable talking. So I wanted to know, you know, what was happening. I started to pay attention to the body language. And there are gender differences uh, in how male and female adults carry themselves. And men do use more expansive, powerful posture than women do. So I started to see this difference in the classroom and wondered if does it not only express the power we feel, but can it cause us to feel powerful? So if I got the, the, the quieter students, and by quiet, I don't mean introverted. I mean the students who wanted to speak but weren't speaking. If I got them to change their body language, would they feel more powerful and confident? And would that allow them 
to speak in class, to take their time when they're speaking and, and so on. Talk about the, the way that you measured this and the science behind it. The, there's the research on expansiveness and how it relates to power. And a lot of that work was done by a, a wonderful researcher at the University of British Columbia named Jessica Tracy, who also has a great book called Pride. And what she found was that around the world, everywhere that she went, people expressed power through expansiveness. So they expand, they make themselves big. That's true for humans, and it's true for non-humans. Power is expressed through expansiveness. So that had been established in the, you know, the, 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 I would say the 10 years before we started doing this work. The other thing that had been established was that our facial expressions don't just express emotion, they also cause emotion. So if you want to feel happier, smiling can help you to feel happier. So it works in both directions. So the, what, what we were trying to put together were, were these different pieces. Power is linked to expansiveness. That's universal. It seems to be hardwired. Changing your facial expression changes the way you feel. So can change changing your posture also change the way you feel? So in our studies, we had people adopt expansive or contractive postures. They were randomly assigned to one condition or the other. They held those postures for between 30 seconds and five minutes, depending on the study. And we measured how powerful they felt after doing this. In most of the studies, they didn't know what the hypothesis, hypothesis was, so they were, not, um, they were not telling us what we wanted to hear. What we found was that people felt more confident and more powerful and more in charge after adopting an expansive posture than after adopting a contractive posture. And now to, to imagine these postures, let's take two simple examples. An expansive posture would be standing with your hands on your hips and your feet apart and your shoulders back. Right. A contractive posture would be standing with your sort of your ankles wrapped and your arms maybe wrapped around your waist or, you know, touching your neck or your face with your shoulders hunched forward. That's the kind of posture that we're talking about. Just adjusting that for a couple of minutes before going into a stressful situation changed people's feelings of power. And since you did the TED Talk, the, um, I have to ask you about this whole rigmarole around challenging some of the studies that you had done. Um, many other social science and social psychologists came under siege with the sort of a reform movement around the methodologies behind it. What is different than what you first thought since that whole yeah. thing evolved? Yeah, so there has been a sort of um, methods revolution in my field in the last five years, I would say. So, it, you know, it was it was it kind of picked up about the year after my TED talk, where the methods that social psychologists had been using for literally decades, for fifty years, um, were being challenged by other psychologists who were saying we need bigger sample sizes. For example, you know, this is not the fifty people. That, that's not enough people to have in a study. We need 200 people, for example. Almost all of social psychology, existing social psychology was challenged. And this sort of replication movement began where people tried to replicate old studies. And so our studies were among those. What we are seeing is that the effect on feelings of power has now replicated 17 times in 17 independent studies. So that is what I would call a real and robust effect. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're in the US or another country. It doesn't matter if you have uh, men or women. 
when people adopt expansive postures, on average, they're likely to feel more powerful and more confident. And the psychology of power and confidence um, leads to a whole sort of downstream series of, of, of changes. The finding that does not seem to hold up is the effect on hormonal changes. So we had found very clearly that adopting expansive postures led to an increase in testosterone, in circulating levels of testosterone, and a decrease in circulating levels of cortisol. Those findings, there have been several attempted replications. In most of those, you don't get all of the effects. If the hormonal effects don't hold up, who cares? If you feel more powerful, isn't that really the essence of it? It's like saying, oh, we gave this person, you know, a sugar pill and she felt better. Well, I care that she feels better. Right? right? Yeah, absolutely. And to me, the the most important variable always was how people feel. I mean, that's what you're ultimately trying to change. That's the bread and butter of psychology, right, is to change how people feel. Um, and I should say, and, and I, I, I don't mean to sound defensive about this at all, but science should evolve and, and people should not be afraid to put out what they know at the time, right, and, and to be open to the, the possibility that some of that will be right and some of that will be wrong. So I and I say, I say that because I just think it's so important for people, for young scientists not to be afraid to share their science and to know that it will evolve and that's okay. Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Tell me something else that is completely jazzing you right now. New research, new exciting things in social psychology that we should be paying attention to. Oh, okay. Well, um, what I'm working on now is is um, a book on uh, bullying and bystanding and and bravery. So I am really digging into, you know, what are the factors that lead people down those different paths? I mean, everyone can be a bully. Everyone can be a bystander. Everyone can be a brave heart. But what are the situations that bring those qualities out in us? And how can we do a better job of bringing out the bravery and of, you know, <laughs> sort of shutting down the bullying? which I do I do think has become a bit of an epidemic. Mm. Um, I think it's become more acceptable and normative to be uncivilized. Um, and I, I'm not talking about, you know, drinking tea at three o'clock, tea and scones or something. Which would be <laughs> awesome. Civilized. I just mean treating each other with basic decency. It's 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 seen as going above and beyond. And I think that's completely insane. I agree. So I, I'm trying to get us back to it's not just it's not just bad behavior and mean behavior. It's destructive to um, to knowledge. Right. How can we share knowledge? How can we evolve and improve um, as people, as a society, as a science, if we're, we're doing everything from this defensive, mean-spirited um, perspective? What I learned through my experience over the last couple of years, and, and yes, you are, tr- you are right, I have dealt with some very nasty behavior, and, and I think it's fair to say that I've dealt with academic bullying. And What's been most painful for me is not the bullies because I can see them as I I can categorize them as different. Like there's something different about them. What is most painful is 
watching the bystanders do nothing. Oh. So watching my friends do nothing. And <gasps> well, look, some people have been braveheart. Some people have been truly heroic. They've put themselves on the line to defend not just me, but civility and science more broadly. Mm. Uh, and and they, they've, they've experienced a lot of backlash for that. But when, okay, if you have a worldview uh, where the world is basically good and safe, then you would expect that if you're being punched in the face in the town square, some people are going to come to your defense. You know, and, and so that's what, what, what happens when you're bullied today is that you're bullied in the town square, which is online, on social media. It's mm-hmm. very, very public. And you expect people to come to your defense publicly. Instead, what, what I found was happening was that I was getting these private emails from people saying, oh, I'm so sorry this is happening. I you know, totally think this is wrong. This is horrible. You know, I wish I could help, but I, you know, I don't want to put a target on my back or I, I just can't risk it. I can't put myself out there. I hate and that. that I hate that. You probably are familiar with uh, an organization in Cambridge called Facing History and Ourselves, which is, right, fabulous organization. And I love the way that um, the founder had described the difference between a bystander and an upstander. Oh, yeah. Right. And that's that's such a it's such a and that's what I keep thinking about. If you're my friend, then then be an upstander. Don't be a bystander. Absolutely. And I want to actually give a shout out to Monica Lewinsky also, who gave a wonderful, like very, very brave TED talk on her experience um, as a you know victim of intense bullying. Uh, and she talks about the difference between bystanders and upstanders. Uh, I, I've, I've been using the term brave heart, which I see is slightly different, but I think there are a lot of parallels. And, and I'm sure that my, my ideas are you know, inspired by many of these people, including Monica Lewinsky. So last question for you, Ms. No, Dr. Amy Cuddy. That doctor <laughs> thing is awesome. Uh, so Dr. Amy Cuddy, we started the interview and I asked you your best financial or career decision. And you said being open and just being willing to go where opportunities led you. How about your worst Oh, I've, I mean, I'm not a person with a shortage of, of like sort of bad, bad decisions. Um, um, geez, let's see. My biggest mistakes sort of fall into the category of trying to change who I am. And, um, and, and, and I'm not saying that people can't change, but there are some fundamental things that are difficult to change. So rather than appreciating the qualities that I had to bring to the table, I, I wanted to be different. So, for example, I was, I was kind of embarrassed that I was from this very or withholding of the fact that I was from this very working class background from, you know, rural America, a tiny town, um, and that I, you know, I didn't go to a fancy school. I worked my way through college as a roller skating waitress. You know, I went to the University of Colorado. And uh, that, that, that what I have to, to offer may not be the same as someone who, um, you know, who grew up in, in the town that I now live in, Newton, Massachusetts, and, and went to Harvard as an undergraduate. And that's okay. All of these perspectives are necessary and valuable. So rather than trying to sort of um, shut down or hide who I am. I mean, this is back to where we started a yep. bit. I, I had to embrace who I was. I really love that. And when I, when I was able to do that, I found all of these people coming to me saying, hey, I'm, you know, I'm from the same kind of background and I feel like an outsider. Uh, and I'm so glad to know that you're here because that makes me feel like I can be here. So it was, it was not allowing myself to be who I was. That's, see, that's beautiful. That's a wonderful, that's totally perfect way to end this. 
Thank you so much, Amy. It has been such a privilege. And I hope this was a interview that was slightly different than some of the others. It was great. Well, thank you so much to Amy Cuddy. Check out her book. It's now in paperback. Presence, bringing your boldest self to your biggest challenges. You can download the show or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or just hop on to JillOnMoney.com. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. Don't forget, there are new episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13, and we are sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.